Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Well, I'm surrounded by a century of viticultural experience, so we're going to go deep, but most importantly, this people are so cool. And if you don't think that by the end of the program, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> I am just so honored and thrilled. So um, I'll introduce the person to my left first, Michael Wolf, um, and he's a New York boy. Uh, he actually grew up uh, very close uh, to New York City and um, went to Alfred University, mm-hmm. where he got a degree in history. Right. And then he went ahead and moved to Mendocino, you know, to Ukiah, essentially, to the coast with some friends, and um, started this lifestyle that was very native. He did everything with his hands and um, participated very actively in agriculture before he ever started on the viticultural path. But of course, that's where, uh, thankfully, he was led and um, eventually he was managing vineyards in Pope Valley. And um, Andy Bexalfer, that name should ring a bell, tapped him to manage 500 acres. He was actually participating in quite enormous amounts of land um, in 1994. In 1997, I'm oh, sorry, it's, that was 1997, um, he started his own viticultural services company. He now manages, again, 500 acres, he sort of came full circle, and um, 30 clients, is that correct? More like 40, More 42. Like 40. Wow. So, um, Michael is very well known in Napa Valley, and we won't mention names, but a lot of cult wines happen to be from the vineyards that um, see a lot of hand handling by this wise, very sage man as you learn. So to my right is Garrett Buckland, and he's a native Napa uh, resident, and his dad was actually quite a famous viticulturalist out, and he tells me he's been on the tractor since the age of five, he admitted. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, uh, don't call anyone from OSHA, I don't know what the statute is. <laughs> So he basically grew up in the vineyards, and um, now he manages 22. Is that accurate? Yeah, about 22 clients. Yeah. Wow. And um, what's interesting is that you not only co-founded the Premier Viticultural Services with Steve Mathiason, we have another company that's called Vine Info. Right. Right. And that focuses on the software data, right? Right. So uh, data gathering, data collecting, uh, really a. Uh, unique program that we can integrate a lot of our technology uh, yeah. for, for what we do in the vineyard. Well, so if you have any burning questions that have to do with technology, that's, that's the man. And over there to my right is Rob Harris, and he's the general manager and director of operations for Price Family Vineyards. You might have heard of Durrell and Gaps Ground. It's two extraordinary properties um, that most wine geeks know quite well. Um, so like to call them geeks. <laughs> okay. Yes, it's an all-inclusive sport, um, but you know those vineyards certainly merit a tremendous amount of attention. Um, there's nine total in your portfolio. Yeah, plus seven, minus. eight, nine, depending on how you look at it. Right. Um, so you are an agri-economist by education, is that correct? Agricultural economics. Exactly. Yeah. And then, but you're a great grower by trade. That is. What's near and dear to your heart? It's the only thing I've ever done professionally. Yeah. 
and you're very passionate about um, high-level wine growing. Tell us a little bit about that. What does that mean to you? Oh, I don't know, I think it means probably something different to everybody, but uh, for me and, and my role within our organization, it, it really, I guess, becomes the, the freedom and the liberty to focus on wine quality above all else. And that's, uh, that is a freeing aspect that is an additional responsibility, but one that, that I cherish and I'm happy with. But uh, it, it, it gives a focus, it gives a reason to do what we do, and, and uh, helps me kind of every day do what I do. So when you hear the word premium, you do that for a living. You grow premium grapes. You there you go. Um, so we'll dive right in. As Katie um, very eloquently put, we really need to start from the beginning. A lot of conversations amongst wine people either focus on the end result or start in the middle with winemaking. We felt it was really important to start in the vineyard. And we're just going to talk about what it takes to plant and plant a vineyard. What is vineyard architecture? What is what does that mean? So, Mike, we'll start with you. Okay, um, it's really, really, really complicated. <laughs> um, Good news. <laughs> and what what we try to do is start from the simplest part and from the part that you can't change, which mm -hmm. is the land. Mm -hmm. um, in after that come owners, come wine styles, come permitting, come a lot of things. But in terms of understanding the land, the process is really different. Um, whether it's a replant situation or if you're developing brand new land. Um, if you're developing brand new land, you don't have any kind of backlog of information to look at. If it's a replant, you can look at the existing vineyard, you can look at all sorts of soil and tissue sampling records, you can look at a lot of harvest information that gives you a, a starting point. Um, for better or worse, it doesn't mean you're going to continue down that same path, mm -hmm. but it's, it's background. Um, if you're starting from scratch, it's a whole different thing. And th there, there's good and bad parts to both. Um, they're, they're just different. Um, one of the most important things for us um, is, you know, prioritizing things. And, and we try to really prioritize what the highest potential of the site is. Um, and a little bit unlike what Rob was talking about, it's not always about making the best wine on the planet. Um, one of our challenges with clients is they may not have bought the best Cabernet ground in the valley, Oops. even though it's an Napa Valley land and they paid a gazillion dollars for it. Um, and we, we need to make sure that everybody understands what they have. Um, so to that end, we usually dig a lot of holes. Mm -hmm. um, we typically will employ one consulting company or another to do analysis of the site when we're we're looking at the overall site but we're also really looking for differences within that site mm -hmm. um, and that starts to speak to the architecture mm -hmm. of the vineyard um, Makes sense. and you know how fine a point 
you want to put on the differences. And when you start to build the vineyard, you may change rootstocks, you may change varieties, you may change spacing, um, all depending on what that site is telling you. Mm -hmm. So once you have that background, then for us, because we don't own any vineyards, we're, we're always farming other people's land, mm -hmm. we need to start to talk to them about what their goals are, mm -hmm. you know, and are, are they a winery? You know, are there considerations in terms of, you know, keeping a wine pipeline full mm -hmm. or wanting to expand on, you know, on the portfolio of, of what they're doing? Um, or are they a grower who end all and be all is to sell grapes for, to have as profitable an operation as they can? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we tell people a lot is 10 times 3 and 3 times 10 are the same thing. Uh -huh. That if you're a grower and you're selling grapes, you really care about dollars per acre uh -huh. and not about dollars per ton. And you can get there in any number of ways. Uh -huh. And we try really hard to emphasize, you know, again, going back to the potential of the site uh -huh. and respecting the site and not trying to grow, I mean, a gross example of it would be, you probably don't want to try to grow great Pinot Noir in Calistoga. Um, you may, but you probably don't. Mm -hmm. It's an uphill battle. Right, you probably know that from experience. Right. Oh, no. <laughs> right. We've got to hear that story at some point. You know, and... Again, you know, it's all about being respectful of the land. It's being respectful of of people's budgets, yeah. um, of of what their goals are and what's appropriate for for that site. And once you've got that done, the mechanical stuff becomes fairly easy. Uh -huh. um, we understand rootstocks. Um, we understand buying spacing within the context of all of those bigger goals. Uh -huh. And it's important to get all of that stuff right. Um, in, in Napa County, one of the things that we do have to deal with, and particularly with, with new developments, is there are some pretty stringent environmental regulations that we need to conform to. Uh -huh. um, That's and, not just in Napa County. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> We see the same kind of thing too, and and it can affect you know per particularly what it can affect are things like road direction. Mm -hmm. um, we we're having to be really cognizant of erosion issues. Um, it has to do with ground management techniques over time. You know, is it land mm -hmm. that we can or cannot cultivate? Um, that's going to spill over into choices about rootstock uh -huh. and about trellising and about spacing between vines. Um, we need to have a really good understanding of, of what our water supply is. Yes, especially um, in California. Especially in California. And, uh -huh. and again, that's something that in, in some parts of the valley are regulated, one, uh -huh. one part of the valley in particular. And we, we need to be cognizant of that for any number of reasons. It's not just regulation. Mm -hmm. It's about not being wasteful. And it's about, again, trying to grow the highest quality fruit that we possibly can from 
any given site. And, and that may mean growing something other than Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, we try to tell clients in, in Napa Valley that you really don't want to grow bad anything. Um, and with Cabernet prices being what they are, it's kind of difficult to make a, an argument to not plant Cabernet everywhere. Um, but we do that, and sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not. You know, it's it's their money, it's their land. We can make suggestions. Yeah. Uh, and we need to think about farmability of of the land. You know, how are we going to get this done um, in terms of the way the vineyard is laid out, um, you know, do, you know, if it's a really steep, rocky, difficult kind of parcel, do you have the resources in the long run to do a whole lot of hand farming? Yep. You have to think about, you know, the ultimate cost of farming a piece of land, you know, as you go through the, um, the development process. So there's all of these kind of overview sort of things you need to understand um, and once you get those all sort of lined up the the details sort of fall into place fairly easily mm -hmm. the technical stuff you know there are there are you know some really wonderful consultants in the valley Garrett included you know there there are other companies you know that mm -hmm. um, even for, for growers that don't have a lot of technical expertise within their own operations, those resources exist. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's, they're, they're super valuable because they, they typically exist without prejudice. Yeah. You know, they're, they're really just trying to offer you uh, an expert opinion into the, the technical stuff. Um, and some people, and, and it's the same thing as, as hiring a vineyard management company. There's no right or wrong person mm -hmm. to work with. It's about finding the, the right match. You know, there's a lot to unpack here. We just, you guys, I know that you're listening carefully and the major takeaway, and you tell us, you know, ask questions, but tell us what your thoughts are on this. For me, it was, you know, there's so much emotional romantic attachment to the estate vineyard, which of course is totally valid, except we don't know when it was planted and how. Um, so it could have been planted haphazardly to wrong varietals or whatever. So when you actually experience it for the first time, you are tasked with the job of, you know, very thoughtfully and deliberately discerning what is it that can and cannot be done. And one common ground with this panel that I just want to highlight, they're all very thoughtful, cerebral people. They cover a lot of geography between them. We're talking from Anderson to Central Coast. So the breadth and depth of experience is extraordinary, but it's also the approach. And um, you are now realizing that even before, in the case of a new vineyard, the, the little vine goes in the ground. There's so many decisions that have to be made. And they have to be made super thoughtfully in order to maximize it and create a vineyard that actually will last. Because now we know so much more that we knew a decade ago and two mm -hmm. decades ago, and three and four and so on. So in order to create real value for the client, but also for the land, all those things have to be considered. Right. I, you know, I think um, if I can jump in on that Absolutely. one. I, I, I look at uh, a lot of what Mike said is is exactly spot on, but uh, the best vineyards are built with a purpose. And so, 
you know, the minute that we can engage with uh, our clients or find out what we're actually looking for from a piece of ground um, and have uh, open expectations about what it can actually do for us, uh, that's how we really make these properties shine. And um, it is fun. I mean, we, we don't always get to replant things to our, our taste, right? So we, we walk into situations where other people have made made decisions either correct or incorrect or, or under different assumptions uh, as well, uh, that we have to make work to their fullest potential. Um, <clears throat> but nothing's better than being able to work with a site uh, for a few years and then uh, craft a, a replant plan uh, for it. Uh, because the things that we look at today uh, sometimes are very different than uh, than what uh, the expectations were uh, 20 years ago even, or 30 years ago. I think about some vineyards that I put in in the late 90s, and, and um, I think about if somebody's on that property today, being like, wow, what was that guy thinking? Yeah, what was he thinking? You know, thinking? <laughs> thinking? Uh, I'm glad I came up. You know, um, so we, you know, our collective body of work carries uh, behind us sometimes, but uh, what I what I really like to do is is be able to work with a site for a few years if it's a uh, if it's an untouched piece of ground, um, learning as much as we can about um, uh, about the, the specific site uh, uh, climate, uh, its its aspect, uh, some of those things that Mike mentioned about what can we realistically plant from a regulatory standpoint. Those all play into uh, this really complex matrix of things that that uh, uh, force us in one way to, to build a really awesome vineyard. Um, some of the things that we look at today, in addition to uh, just proper input uh, uh, considerations, so if a site doesn't have water, we need to design a vineyard that's very drought tolerant. If a site doesn't have um, you know, the, the ripening element, we need to think about a different variety for it. And so um, I just like looking at, at, that, um, at that equation and saying, What's going to work best for this property, uh, and what's going to be what's going to be the outcome here? Are we going to have a vineyard that that I get to retire and be like, wow, this this vineyard's doing really well, you know? So mm -hmm. um, the next guy that gets to work with this property can be uh, excited about uh, coming in and working uh, working with a well functioning vineyard. Um, today, a lot of what we're doing is is in response to uh, kind of future proofing our vineyards. So. Um, in, in, incredibly important for us to start with a very clean vineyard. Uh, a virus uh, vineyard is is one that can present all kinds of different problems uh, moving into the future. And so uh, starting from absolutely clean material, starting with a really good idea of what we want to make out of those wines. Uh, but but not only that, um, if we see a warming, uh, a warming future uh, for our growing area, if we see a cooling future for our growing area, there's ways to build in flexibility uh, in our trellis systems and way we plant vines uh, to really um, deal with that risk management uh, uh, that no matter what happens in the future, we can actually, we can actually design for that. And um, that's something that is, is really kind of version version 3.0 for these vineyards as we as I like to look at it mm -hmm. um, we're integrating those decisions um, in, at every step of the of the game um, you know I just finished a vineyard project where uh, it's 250 300 thousand dollars an acre to develop um, that's not a small sum of money um, you know and so you start thinking about um, think about if you if you really mess something up that just <laughs> forward it's just a bad investment and so um, there is a lot of pressure on us to, to help people make the right decisions um, and I think that's something that uh, more and more everybody on this panel uh, gets that but more and more everyone in our industry is really understanding that, um, that the cost of entry is very high uh, and, and as a result we have to perform well for all vineyards 
Um, you know, but Mike made a, a great point. Not every vineyard is the world's best cat vineyard. Um, you know, and it, it may be the world's best shard vineyard, or it may be, mm -hmm. it may be uh, just a really good uh, wine that you can have that's 25 bucks. And, and there's a whole host of, of, uh, of different metrics that go into us deciding what to actually put on a property. Um, I look at some of these things as, as really good challenges. You know, here we work with a lot of the best cab vineyards in the world, um, but it's really fun to say, have somebody say, you know what, I really want to have a Chenin Blanc and I want right. to do it perfectly. And so it's kind of fun when you have those like um, out of the box challenges and, and you design something for that. Um, but we are living here in Napa and certainly all through the North Coast. Uh, we have a lot of flexibility about what we can plant. Um, other parts of the world, you don't you don't have that. You know, if you're in a if you're in an ABA where um, you you sorry, it won't be an ABA ABA in other parts of the world, but if you're in an Appalachian where you just can grow Cab or Bordeaux varieties, um, you know, you, you don't get the flexibility to try different things. Um, and that's such a salient point, but I just want to focus for a moment on the serious note of there has to be such an extreme amount of pressure fiduciary responsibility to the client, to the land, to you guys, to, and we're all consumers, so it's not just you, but, you know, these people truly care about what winds up in a bottle. So even with the extraordinary amount of expertise, and in, in your case, you're really very technology aware as well, and we'll talk about that later on, there still has to be this risk factor, and you have to constantly mitigate that, and constantly be so aware of what is it that you're doing, the purpose, and there's so many details. You just said, and Garrett, you said it too, one of my favorite words, purpose. Yeah. I, I talk to my people and I try and like to work in a, in a mind space of purpose and cause. Yeah. Right? And, and that, it's, it's one way to, to order things. It's one way to have a roadmap to those million mm -hmm. different decisions that, that we talked about and put in the vineyard. But, uh, you know, for us, we kind of work backwards a lot of times. Most mm -hmm. times we start with, uh, with a bottle. A huh. uh, label, a uh, brand, uh, a specific bottling, and say this is what we're after. Now let's work backwards. Um, you know, it, it still it needs to meet those criteria. It needs to fit that. We're not, you know, totally have the dog or the tail wagging the dog, I should say. But uh, a lot of times that is the, the vision and kind of where where we start and then work in that direction. So it's uh, you talk about responsibility yeah. for, that, mm -hmm. for sure. But yeah. it also, like I said, creates somewhat of a roadmap mm -hmm. where, you know, if you have that that ultimate goal, mm -hmm. I mean, you guys working for different clients, everyone's going to have a different goal, and then yeah. it's kind of your job to, at the same time, educate them as to if their goal is, is right or not, mm -hmm. but then also put together their goal. Um, you know, for us, it's, we'll sit and we'll talk about it, and nothing's really handed down directly, but uh, as that goal materializes, sometimes we're all the way back to site selection at times, so... Maybe not just once you're on a piece of land, but but uh, site selection for a new vineyard and you know reblock development within bigger properties that have other things. It's but purpose and goal is is paramount to me and and, and what we do and and to use that as a, a guiding light that way. Yeah, without that purpose, I mean you you can you can get a vineyard that's done by committee. 
that just never really right. fully never shines, right? Right. So it's like, never you know, it's like, that's how your house ends up being beige or something <laughs> like that. Right? Like you never agree on a paint color. Everybody ends up but, when everything's a compromise. Right? right, right. But having that clear goal is incredibly important. And whether that's, you know, to make a $22 bottle of really fantastic Sauvignon Blanc or to make, um, you know, these, these $400 bottles of Cabernet that we do uh, or, or design a vineyard for 100 point wine, they do take different inputs. And, um, you know, it's, it's very cool to see that there's such a breadth that we can do here. Um, and there's people working on all ends of the spectrum. Um, and that's really refreshing. So the pressure's not always on for us to get a hundred point wine right. everywhere, and that's that's a good that's a good thing. Ron, I think one of the interesting things also that we need to think about when when we're either developing a piece of, mm -hmm. of land or or redeveloping it, and I think it speaks to what Rob and, and Garrett both just said is there's going to be inherent variability, you know, whether it's a five acre piece or whether it's a hundred acre piece. And as you go through the process of deciding what you're going to do, you need to choose whether you're going to optimize that variability or minimize that variability. You know, is your goal to make this as uniform a vineyard as you possibly can, you know, and you do that maybe by different trellising to different rootstocks to have the same outcome in from one part of the, the vineyard to another, or are you saying, I'm going to embrace all of these differences, um, either because it's going to make an estate wine more interesting, or it's going to give an owner a lot of different options of what he's going to sell. Uh, and I think, you know, and that's something you need to get squared away early on in the yeah. process. Yeah. You don't, you don't that's want another line philosophy, yeah. not just a decision. Yeah, right. exactly. No, you're exactly. talking about the foundational part because your first obligation is to the land. Because if you really think about it, you have a lot of accountabilities. There's the vintner, there's the person that's spending money, or persons. There's, of course, the winemakers. I think you work with 40. You work with roughly 40. Uh, a lot. A lot. So a this lot. is how many micro-bosses you have. So know, if you focus on the details, that's that's almost impossible. I'm, my head's hurting from just thinking about it. So there, there, There's a couple vineyards that we have, and Mike, I'm sure you have this too. Uh, we may have one block with 10 different winemakers right. buying out of mm -hmm. one, one individual right. block. You can need more wine. I know. Like, seriously. And it's super yeah, easy to make everybody happy, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's impossible. If you have that single-minded focus, that right. foundational piece, when you know what is it that's the most important, and then you build from there, I think that's how you keep saying, and also I think it's such a beautiful thought that you know, everybody talks about the line and tiro in our world, but you actually make it happen. You actually make decisions that affect that particular piece of dirt, so to speak, for potentially hundreds of years, if not Right, yeah, if we can do it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I always love to uh, plan for a vineyard to outlive me. Um, I think that's great. I, I have the fortune of working with a bunch of old vineyards, you know, some Zinfandel from the 1800s, um, uh, Chardonnay from the uh, 50s, you know, on these mountain sites. And uh, it's, just, it's just amazing to see. Uh, yeah, in some cases, it's not the world's best planted vineyard or designed vineyard, but you, you sort of work with that. Uh, and there's a, there's a history element to that as well. But um, I'm hoping that one day, a long time from now, hopefully, uh, somebody else looks back at the decisions we made in a lot of these really fantastic vineyards and, and thinks they were the right ones. 
Um, but more and more, and Mike, you can you can jump in on this too. The uh, we're seeing a lot of you know we're seeing some heat spikes. We're seeing lots of variability um, that can come up with weather. And one thing that we are as farmers, we're really we're really good about um, you know building in good risk management tools. Um, you know, and I think to me the the vineyard of the future is really the one that. Uh, that allows us to be buffered from some of that. So in a lot of cases, we're doing things like um, installing some misting systems where we can really cut down on our water use, but cool the vine just for a certain hot day or a very low humidity day. Uh, we're doing, you know, we're, we're making these minor adjustments to the trellis to really um, not just uh, uh, safeguard us from these heat events, but really just build better wines from the start. Um, and, and I look back at some of the things that we did uh, where they were just they were fads, right? You know, mm -hmm. oh, absolutely. In the late '90s, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and now I think we're uh, everybody's understanding, like thinking about these things with a little better um, uh, game plan. Yeah, I, th I couldn't agree more. And, and one of the things that that we think about, you know, whether 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 it's an established vineyard or whether it's something that we're starting from from scratch, is to think about resiliency of our vines. Uh, we we don't necessarily want overly vigorous vines. There's a real difference between resiliency and, and vigor. But we want them to be able to thrive under environmental pressures. You know whether whether that's warmer summers. Um, you know in in a situation where maybe we don't have the water resources to put misters up. Mm -hmm. We need to figure it out. Right. We need to be able to design that vineyard so that not only is it going to survive, but that it's going to thrive and produce the highest quality fruit that that land is capable of. So, it you know, we start to talk about a lot. We talk about and think about just the health of the soil. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think particularly in the context of the kind of development cost Garrett is talking about, you can't do a 25-year vineyard anymore. Right, right. And that just doesn't work. It has to go into the future. <laughs> yeah, at, at any bottle price, that doesn't work. Um, so we need to think much, much longer term mm -hmm. and, and how to plant vineyards and how to care for vineyards to make them resilient to all of these things that are going to be coming at them. So you're actually taking, you know, the buzzwords that we've come to hear quite often, sustainability, you know, climate change, and you're actually actively addressing it every single day as part of your job description. Sure. I hope so. Yeah, we better. Right. Yeah, think about it. Think about it. We're, we're the ones trying to pull a living out of that ground, right? I mean, yeah. I think we would be silly and foolish to not be the primary stewards of that ground if nothing else to that end. That's yeah, that, that, that structure is built into farming. I mean, every farmer, when you talk to them, is... is uh, it's really like every day I wake up and the first thing I do is check the weather. You know, right. those, these things are these things are just built into the farming process. But um, it's really great now that you know, as we all talk about ways to become more sustainable about our vineyards, uh, we have a lot more tools now. And and when people start thinking about a vineyard development, uh, not only to persist for the next hundred years, uh, uh, but but use less resources, have fewer inputs. Uh, those are all things that, as an industry, we're we're making great strides to. Uh, to really include in all of our thought processes. Um, so I'm really encouraged by by at least the adoption of these types of practices in Napa and Sonoma in particular. Um, but certainly all through California, it's it's um, it's built into being a farmer in California. Uh, we have to uh, respond to these types of things. 
I have an allergy to empty glasses, and I was actually <laughs> going to say cheers to that. Cheers. We're drinking Auburn Sauvignon Blanc. Make sure I give the correct vintage. It's 2017. It's absolutely delicious. Um, yes, now we're really enjoying it. So let's do cheers because you guys rock. Um, and speaking of rocking, I see a question from our audience. Thank you for the question. So I'll read it. Um, like chefs becoming a celebrity, they're rock star winemakers. To me, you're a pivotal piece to this rock star. Do you feel that the business is truly understanding your craft to make this happen? Um, everyone understands the question, so should we just go? Uh, yeah, sure. You know, great question. Um, I had the fortune of uh, uh, sharing a house with a chef, so I, I get one of these uh, comments. That <laughs> definitely built in. You know, chefs are, yeah. are fantastic, and it's neat to see people, uh, you know, with so much passion about what they do, uh, be able to create absolutely fantastic uh, pieces, whether it's in a you know winery or a or a chef setting or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I always look at that type of question as. Um, you know, how can I integrate that? How can I make other folks look good? You know, here we are on the vineyard side, and uh, we we spend a lot of time out in the field with um, some things we can control and some things we can't. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think part of our job is to really make the people we work with shine. And um, you know, I think you talk to any of these rock star winemakers, and they'll tell you um, they can't do what they do without having absolutely fantastic fruit um, that's that's consistent and coming from. A known property, and they they realize they're just not going to get into a lot of trouble. And uh, so I look at you know at least on the vineyard role, um, not taking a lot of the credit, but uh, uh, you know having those guys be the focal pieces. That that feels better to me anyway. Yeah, and I think there is you know a a, a good analogy there, and I, I totally agree with that, what Garrett is saying. But you know you hear more of the the celebrity chefs and the the high-powered restaurateurs talking about their raw materials mm -hmm. now more and more, um, you know, and the whole farm-to-table movement, mm -hmm. which is becoming, you know, kind of more than a movement. It's just kind of becoming real life. It's what people do, and um, and yeah, I, I mean, one of the the best descriptions I, I ever heard, and I'll leave it, um, you know, to unnamed people. But the vineyard guys need to deliver diamonds, and the winemakers need to polish them. Right? Love it. And we just need to continue to do that. And and I think Garrett, you know, what Garrett touched on, I think, is also really, really important. It needs to be predictable, and it needs to be reliable, and it needs to be kind of devoid of surprises, you know. And that that involves some communication, you know, during. During the growing season, you know, if it's a miserable, really, really hot summer, yeah. um, you need to be talking to the winemaker as that summer goes on about expectations. Um, the same, uh, I mean, one, one of the easiest examples is 2011. You know, don't mm -hmm. expect 28.5, guys. <laughs> yeah. you know, this is not going to happen. <laughs> um, and and I think, you know, as long as there's that that level of understanding and, and reliability and knowing that that we're going to provide the best that we can in any given season, then um, then I, 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 I mean, the winemakers themselves certainly understand it. You know, whether the consumer does, maybe, maybe not. I, I focus, sorry. Oh, no, no, please go ahead. I focus on the word pivotal in that. Uh -huh. and that 
to me, I think there isn't necessarily a, a, a pivot or a fulcrum point to it when we're doing the best we can and it's more of a continuum. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and here in California, in, in modern viticulture, I think there's there's probably more segments to this whole process than mm-hmm. there are in other parts of the world or historically speaking. Um, and it's not to say that it all is one big flow back and forth. We, we have our individual roles as the, the vineyard folk and the winemakers and, and there is kind of a handoff at one point, but before that handoff there has to be a, a flow and a continuum and a back and forth and an understanding on all sides. You know, I need to know what my winemakers are, are shooting for and what their goals are. They need to know what I'm up against out there. Mm-hmm. And, and together that, that creates hopefully the, you know, the, the best wines we can make. It's, so the pivot, I mean, it, not to pick apart just the sentence or the, the semantics there, but I, I don't like to see it as a pivot. I like to see it more as a, a flow. Um, also, a more cohesive, kind of holistic Yeah, I think, I think when we're operating at our, at our highest, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a give and take, it's a back and forth. It, there isn't one magic day on the calendar where my responsibility becomes theirs or, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And to that end, I, I, I like to consider the vineyards themselves the rock stars. Um, oh my God! Us, we, we are we are people that are lucky enough to be those rock star handlers, and then maybe we we pass them off to the the TV and the production crew right before they go on stage. Mm-hmm. But uh, so well put. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.